and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. The purpose of journalism, according to the American Press Institute, is to provide citizens with the information they need to make the best possible decisions about their lives, their communities, their societies, and their governments. Journalism has been under attack from some quarters in the U.S., so let's consider just a few of the health-related stories brought to light by the best of them in the last decade. The ongoing opioid crisis, the appalling number of maternal deaths, the disproportionate impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on those who are Black, Indigenous, and other people of color and recent efforts to bring medical debt to light. None of these issues emerged overnight. And the best journalists, like our guest in this show, have made that clear. They have been persistent, provided historical context, as well as data, and centered people in their reporting. Today's guest, Noam Levy, is one of these journalists for the Los Angeles Times and now for Kaiser Family Foundation Health News. He is an insightful and fearless interpreter of the healthcare scene, and we are privileged to speak with him today. Noam Levy, welcome to Turn On The Lights. Thanks. One of the things we're trying to do on this podcast is help the audience, the public, connect to issues in healthcare. You've been doing that in some ways your whole life. I mean, this- Trying. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, journalism as a field is really trying to tell relatable stories, trying to connect an audience to the heart of the issue. But can you give us some guidance here, if, if I may? How do we do that better? How do we connect what's going on in healthcare right now to what people are thinking about? Well, first of all, no jargon. That was a big one that I had to learn when I started covering healthcare, that there's a whole language to health policy that nobody else understands and nobody really cares about. And so English, I guess that's number one. I mean, we really try to make patients sort of the focus of what we're doing. I mean, it's not that we don't care about what the doctor or the hospital may be doing, but ultimately our audience as a sort of general purpose publication is the public and the mm -hmm. public experiences healthcare mostly as a patient, although maybe with the small caveat that since one-fifth of the economy is now healthcare, I guess a lot of people experience it as an employee too. But mostly it's patients. And so we try to think about what it looks like from the perspective of the patient in terms of both clinically, what are they seeing and financially, what are they doing? What does it look like when they get home? Do they understand the notes that their physician have left for them? Do they understand the bills that they're getting? Can they make the appointments when they want to? All these sorts of little things that as a patient you experience in the healthcare system. Yeah. We kind of keep trying to keep that front and center. And do they? I guess maybe this is a simple question to start with, or maybe an extremely complicated one, but what's your experience of that? Uh, do people actually understand what they're receiving from healthcare? The bills, the documents, the paperwork, the... No. Okay. I mean, I think... Not only do patients not understand it, but one of the surprising discoveries that I made early on as a healthcare reporter was that a surprising number of people who work in the healthcare system don't really understand how it works or, or what's going on. I mean, one of the things which I always try to do as a healthcare reporter was shadow physicians and other clinicians. Like I would go and spend a half day in a clinic or in a hospital and then say, can I just be a fly on the wall and watch what you do, which was sort of invaluable because as I'm sure you know, the interaction between the doctor and the patient or what the patient's experience is like out in the waiting room, it's just a different world than what it looks like when you're reading a health fairs article or you're at a conference or something. It's just a, yeah. different. And I mean, that was really invaluable. I mean, let's dig further. So I, I was administrator of CMS 
during the early stages of the Affordable Care Act. Don, what's CMS? Centers for, <laughs> American, <laughs> Centers for Medicare and Medicaid <laughs> Services in the Obama administration when the Affordable Care Act passed into the first year and a half of that. It's about, I think, about a 1,700 or 2,000-page bill, and I had to understand it, and there are many, many components of it. So when you see that, like a federal policy like that, or maybe a regulation, which is an interpretation of the law, but you want to explain it to the public, how do you think about that? How do you begin to approach it? What's the way to take this very technical stuff and make it accessible to people that care about healthcare but are not specialists? I mean, we sort of think about what is the direct impact. So, I mean, I always used to think, and I know you weren't responsible for this, Don, but President Obama was terrible. I mean, he was a very good communicator, obviously, in a lot of ways, but he would buy this jargon that Peter Orzag and these other people in the Washington policy world, he'd get out there and say, we're going to bend the cost curve. And I remember sitting in a rally that he went to in Green Bay, Wisconsin, trying to pass the Affordable Care Act. And he was out there saying, we're going to bend the cost curve. And like, what does that mean? Like, I mean, bend the cost curve. I don't even know what the cost curve is and what happens is it it bends, you know? I mean, from my (laughs) perspective, like, is my premium going to be higher? Am I paying more every month? Or like when I go to the doctor, is my copay going to go from $20 to $30 or to $15? Like that's the experience that we try to think about. I mean, we, the, the legislators and the agency people, we don't make it easy for you to translate that into the terms of like what's going to happen to my... Well, my sometimes patient. I don't think they know. But even if they do, yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, I was always having to fight against it. I remember during the Affordable Care Act debate, my wife, who is a public policy degree from Harvard, she's a very intelligent woman. And at the time of the debate over the Affordable Care Act, she was a chief of staff for a, a member of Congress who was obviously involved in trying to understand this bill. And she was one of the reluctant Democrats who ultimately did vote for it, but not initially. And so I would come home from trying to make sense of what was in the law and reading the summaries that various people would put out. And I remember coming home. When she hates when I tell this story, but I'm going to throw it Then I would come home at dinner and I was like, oh, you know, they're trying to do this interesting thing with Medicare Advantage. And she looked at me and she's like, Medicare Advantage? Really? The dinner table? Bill. <laughs> and she was trying to understand it too, but you know, what does that mean? Yeah. We have a lot of things to ask you, but I can't help going into the other country story, which I've heard you talk about now. So if we sat at, we had this conversation about patients and families in Germany or another country, what would they say? Is it more transparent to them or lucid? Do they understand what's going on or it doesn't matter or what? Well, so I would venture to say that no. I mean, the back office functions of any healthcare system in the world, in my experience, at least, or having visited a few of them, I know Don visited way more of them. I don't know if you'd agree with me, but the back office functions of how it all works and the regulations that dictate it are incredibly complicated. They may even be arguably more complicated in some other countries. I mean, if you think about the way that the UK or Germany evaluates prescription drugs and figures out what the value is and how much it should cost and whether it's sort of incrementally better than what's out there already. I mean, that's incredibly complicated. But the thing that distinguishes the experience, I think, for patients is that for them, it's really simple. I mean, if you're a German patient and you go to the hospital, it's 10 euros a day. Whether you're getting a knee replacement or whether you're getting your tonsils out, it's essentially, there's obviously some variation, but it's essentially much more simple. Whereas for us, we don't know what's going to happen. And when, when I stand uh, I have on some medications, when I stand on the line at my local pharmacy, 
watching the person ahead of me get their meds. It, I feel that someone's like spinning one of those wheels on Jeopardy or the roulette table as the person waits to find out what they're going to have to pay. There is no predictability at all from their point of view or mine. I can't tell whether they're going to say, well, that's a $3 copay or, or a $300. Or three, like you might be in line with three or four other people, all of whom are getting exactly the same medicine and they're all going to pay different yeah. things. Like it's yeah. going to be like $5 for one and 500 for something. It's something very complicated. One of the themes in your writing recently that we've been exploring a lot on the show is about medical debt. And I'm just curious, how did you get into the story? Why did you decide to tackle medical debt as a problem in this country? And what are some of your observations about it so far as after time looking at it? I mean, it sort of grew out of reporting that just as of someone who's been on the beat for almost 15 years now, you can't cover healthcare here and not run into people who have trouble paying their medical bills. So that alone is probably an important and interesting observation that you can't avoid this topic. You, you know? can't, you can't. But, but medical debt was something that was obviously, it's the natural progression of not being able to pay your medical bills. And I think a lot of the focus in, historically in both coverage as well as policy response was sort of, okay, they're big medical bills. What do we do about big medical bills? That's, that yeah. is a problem. But I was sort of interested in, okay, I would hear these stories of people who would be like, I had to you know, I, after my second child was born, I had to go back to work after two weeks because the bills were so crazy. Like I couldn't spend any time at home with my kids because we were drowning in debt or I had to move out of my house and move back in with my parents because I slipped and fell after college. And I ended up in the emergency room with $3,000 bill and I couldn't do it on my own. And the sort of thing that really stuck with me was this idea that my dad was a doctor and I saw my dad doing wonderful things for the patients that he cared about. And he, you know, he would get up in the middle of the night and he would go into the OR and operate on these sick kids. And he was focused on making them better. And in my experience coming healthcare, most of the people I would meet, particular clinicians, that was why they got into it in the first place. And then it was sort of the supreme irony that the system that was supposed to be taking care of people was not only leaving them with bills that they couldn't afford, which was bad, but that this was having a direct impact on their health. And so, you know, it was one hand giveth, the other taketh away. It was sort of, we have a healthcare system that was sort of producing debt on this industrial scale. And that debt was literally killing people. How was it doing that? Yeah, yeah same question. <laughs> Tell us What's more about that. What's... Well, so there are many paths, but I mean, one of them is stress alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been some really interesting research, particularly by some folks out at the University of Washington on the experience of cancer patients. And cancer patients who they would match cancer registries with various financial data on bankruptcies and foreclosures and what have you. And they were basically able to establish that cancer patients who controlling for all everything else, who had huge, large amounts of debt were dying, you know, sooner than similarly situated cancer patients without wow. it, which wow. again, I mean, I would talk to oncologists and they would say, Don, I mean, I'm sure you saw this as a clinician too, that the stress response it's a real thing. I mean, it can impact how well you're recovering from disease. But then if you add into that all this talk about social determinants of health, which very rightly, it seems like we're having this conversation about, if you accept that there's all of these social determinants like stable housing and good food that impact people's health, if people have such enormous medical bills that they are losing their homes, that they're cutting back on food, which by the way, 60% of people who have medical debt say that they have been forced to cut back on food, clothing, or other essentials. Hmm. Wow. I mean, how can that not affect people's health? Right? 60% of how many people in our country? 60% of 100 million. 60% of 100 million. So 60 million people are telling us 
because of these medical bills that I can't afford and the medical debt it's leaving me with, I am forced to cut back on essentials. And that's a health issue. Don't you think it is? Yeah, I do. The 100 million figure is your figure from a KFF Health News on survey that we did on a survey. That's 100 million Americans who are in medical debt. Currently. Currently. Yes. Well, what about annually? I mean, how many people get in and out of medical debt? Well, we know that 41, 100 million translates from for about 41 million, 41% of US adults. And we know that 57% of adults say they have been in medical debt at some point in the last five years. So there is some cycling in and out. But it's also worth noting that about one in five people who currently have medical debt say they don't expect to ever get out from under it. Never. 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 Yeah. How did we get into this situation? I mean, just for our listeners to understand this. I mean, we're in this mess right now. Almost half of all American adults are facing medical debt burdens, leading to a surprising number of people that are making consequential decisions about whether to what to eat and what to wear and how they should... Decisions about, I'm sure, their children and future generations. How did we get here? You know, it's interesting. In the course of sort of reporting this project, I was kind of trying to... I studied history. I'm sort of interested in history and I was trying to figure out how far back do we have to go to kind of understand has this always been with us? And if you talk to historians of American healthcare, they will tell you no, that this wasn't really... Like if you go back and read, I went back and read the hearings about Medicare Hmm. in the early mid 60s when they were working on Medicare. You don't find references to debt per se. I mean, there was sort of this mythology that doctors would take with their patients on installment plans and take the chickens, you know, I'll take a chicken instead of payment or what have you. And if you look at the history of hospitals... Some of the early public hospitals like Bellevue, there are accounts of new mothers having to scrub the floors as a way to wow. pay off their minimalist. Wow. So it has been with us, but it is in its current manifestation, it is essentially, a, it is a modern phenomenon that's really been driven by this really profound change in the way health insurance works. And so there always were many Americans who didn't have health insurance and that drove a debt problem, clearly. What's happened, though, over the last 20 years is that as health insurance, commercial health insurance particularly, has shifted costs onto patients through higher and higher deductibles, the medical debt problem has become an affliction of the insured. So let's talk about this for a second, because I think deductibles and this phenomenon of deductibles might be something we need to dig into and unpack a bit. But what is a deductible? How does it work? Why does a high deductible result in more in more debt? So deductibles were sort of an idea that kind of came out of the kind of conservative health policy thinking that patients should have skin in the game and that if patients had to pay a little bit up front, they would make better decisions about using limited health resources in a more rational and careful way. Yeah. And you know, putting aside for a fact for a moment that that underlying assumption was completely wrong. But I mean, it, it's theoretically true, but when you look at the facts, it actually is not how... Yeah, I mean, it sort of reminds me of, you know, the joke about the economist and the chemist and the biologist on a desert island? You're going to tell us. So, you know, there's a story that there's a, there's a biologist, there's a chemist, and there's a physicist, a chemist, and an economist on a desert island, and they're starving, and there's like a can of tuna. And they say, what are we going to do? And the, you know, the physicist says, well, you know, if we hoist it up palm tree and we drop it, there'll be enough force that that will like open the can and we can eat it. And the chemist says, well, if we put the salt water on top of this can, it will create a chemical reaction. It will open the can and we can eat it. And the economist says, 
Well, first, let's assume we have a keto. This is sort of, I feel like this was the sort of underlying dynamic at work with high deductible health insurance, where people said, assume that patients can shop around for a medical care and make wise decisions about where they go to seek it and save money. And it just it didn't work. But it was a way to save money for employers to essentially shift money, shift costs onto workers. Mm-hmm. And so while 20 years ago, most health plans that workers and their families were on had maybe $100 deductible, if any at all. Now, the average deductible for an employer-provided health plan for one person is close to $2,000, and five or $10,000 is not unheard of for many plans. When you have a medical cost or an issue, you pay you the pay- first $2,000 of that out-of-pocket, and then the Before insurance kicks, kicks in. Then the insurance kicks yeah. in. And it used to be 100 bucks, you right. know, the first 100 and then everything else right. the insurance covers right. And, you know, the fact is that Americans don't save a lot of money. And we know that about half of all Americans don't have $500 in disposable savings at their fingertips if they had an unexpected bill of any kind. And there's no such thing as an ER bill that's less than $500. So if you need to go to the hospital for an emergency room visit, you're going to be, if you you don't have $500 in the bank, you're going to be in debt. You're going to be down. No, you're talking about, by the way, the commercial insurance is the insurance most people get through their employer, half the coverage or so in countries, right? Right. A lot of the coverage of countries, governmental, Medicare, Medicaid. How does this cost shift deductible stuff look on the public insurance side? So Medicaid, interestingly enough, the program, the federal government for mostly for low income Americans doesn't really have much cost sharing, which is a major, major difference. Medicare is kind of an interesting case. I mean, John, you know this better than I do, but Medicare actually, for people who only have traditional Medicare, you can actually be exposed to considerable cost sharing. Most Americans have supplemental coverage or are in a Medicare Advantage plan that those plans tend to limit out-of-pocket costs if you do the right things. I mean, but there were always holes, particularly for prescription drugs. And there was some attempt to address this in the Inflation Reduction Act that just passed last year. But one of the things which we discovered in our reporting and looking at the stories, a lot of people wrote in as we reported on medical debt to share their stories, which is a gut-wrenching reading. But a lot of people, a lot of older people who for one reason or another, because of complexities in their MA plan or because they didn't have a supplemental plan or because their drug wasn't covered and they end up in debt. So is medical debt a problem of poor people? No, it is more pronounced in lowering of people. It is more pronounced among Black and Hispanic Americans. Black Americans are 50% more likely than white Americans to have medical debt. But interestingly, it is almost half of people from households making about $100,000 or more are have had medical debt. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I've asked this before, but for our listeners, is this an American problem or is this seen in many other countries? It's almost exclusively an American problem compared to sort of other wealthy democracies. What's the way out of this? So we've got this problem that's massive and it's crippling. I mean, it's crippling to individual families, of course, but I'd say broader than that to the economy, perhaps even, and certainly to employers. Where do we go from here? Or how do we, what's a way out of this vexing situation that's landing so many American adults into debt? I mean, I think in some sense, it's not particularly complicated. People should not be in health plans that require them to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket. It doesn't work. Limit the deductible side. Or limit the maximum amount of pocket that people have to pay. And I mean, interestingly, that idea, I mean, that was a pillar of the Affordable Care Act. The problem was that the max was $8,000 plus. It's it's gone up. It's it's been indexed, so it's going up. And that's more than, than most people can afford. I mean, I thought it was interesting that the Inflation Reduction Act put a out-of-pocket maximum for prescription drugs in Medicare for the first time. 
And I think in recognition of the fact that there just has to be some upper limit that's within reason and health economists and people who know more than I do certainly about the way the system works will sort of say, you know, if you just cap what people pay, it's like a balloon and it comes out somewhere else. And then the hospitals charge higher prices and the insurers have to cover this somehow. And then the premium goes up and if the workers then see lower pay, take home pay. So everything is connected, obviously. But I think unless we sort of address this underlying issue and then sort of think, how do we work backwards from that? This is going to be with us. I mean, we've had discussions about, I know you have on the show with buying medical debt and then retiring it. Mm-hmm. We see efforts to stop hospitals and other and others from putting medical debt on people's credit reports so that it won't impact their ability to get a job or rent an apartment. All of those things are good, but they're not going to change the underlying problem. It is paradox of being such a wealthy country and being unique this phenomenology of medical debt. And spending as much as we do on healthcare. I mean, we spend an enormous amount of money on healthcare in this country, and yet we're oddly taxing our individual citizens at a massive rate, causing all kinds of paradoxical behavior. Is there an opportunity for bipartisanship on this? I mean, is this the kind of thing that actually, with 100 million Americans in debt, I mean, that's across all income spectrums and, and across the whole country. I have to imagine this. Is there something in this that could be appealing to both parties to try to do something about it? I mean, I'm generally an optimistic person, but I don't think anybody would put a lot of money on partisanship in the current environment. But, you know, I do think it is interesting, right? This is an issue that cuts across the whole country. It's not a blue state, red state. I mean, it's everywhere. If anything, it's more pronounced in red states. I think you said that West Virginia is where a significant density or concentration of medical debt. Yeah, there is. And there is, interestingly, you're starting to see some interesting efforts to kind of take on the market power of hospitals in some unexpected places. Indiana, there's some Republican politicians there who are sort of interested, I think driven in part by stories of medical debt and others that something has to be done about this. Montana did some interesting work in this space. So I do think one thing that's interesting about it is that it doesn't fall into the traditional way that Democrats and Republicans fight over healthcare, which is sort of about the role of government programs. I think it will ultimately involve regulation, which is a flashpoint for the two parties. But the discussion about Medicare for all is obviously a hugely polarizing issue that you're never going to get the two parties to work together about that. But if the focus is more on how do we regulate how much, how do we protect how much people have to pay and what kind of regulatory intervention would that require? Could that provide a path? I mean, I don't see any other alternative. You think we might put to bed the uh, notion of skin in the game as necessary? This, you hear people talking about it a lot less. Yeah, I do too. And it's really, it doesn't seem to have a curing support. It's not mm-hmm. the case that if patients pay more to pocket, their purchasing a healthcare is more prudent or more sensible. Or There's no, yeah, there's, there's just virtually no evidence to that effect. And I mean, I'm heartened by the fact that when you talk to employer groups, There seems to be some recognition that they've sort of squeezed their workers as much as they possibly can. And not that a lot of these big corporations are, I'm not sure they're necessarily always completely committed to the well-being of the people who work for them, but a lot of them are. And I was on the phone the other day with a manufacturing company down in Alabama, sort of pretty conservative place, obviously, private company that manufactures screens. And they, a couple of years ago, realized that their workers were not saving for retirement and it wasn't good for them. And they redesigned their health plan and they went very 
focused on primary care and they've saved money on premium because they've been able to increase utilization on primary care and prescription drugs and they're not impoverishing their workers. Your career norm has moved from big issue to big issue. Your current one is medical debt. Is What are one or two others that are on your mind generally that either you have dug into or you want to in the future that you'd like to help the public understand more about? Well, I have a long-suffering book project, which will, <laughs> I had to put on pause when my children came home from school in the pandemic and took over my office when I'm going to get back to Probably more people would read it, honestly. <laughs> but the focus was on sort of tracking the sort of 50-year effort to save American healthcare through the lens of some of the insights that were developed in thinking about primary care and developing models that coming out of the community health center movement. Uh, you were going to be in this book about quality improvement and kind of that all of these ideas that evolved about that we sort of know, we know what works. We just haven't been able to make it define our system because there's been this race between the sort of the good witch of integrated team-based primary care based on quality engineering and good data against the sort of mercenary forces of American healthcare that have sort of time and again quashed these initiatives as they've sprouted up. So I'm sort of hoping to get back to this at some point, but primary care sort of being the, I'm fascinated by the history of the evolution of these models and their sort of manifestation in advanced primary care models and so you, you do see some that you think could be helpful. I think so. I mean, some of them are have obviously evolved alongside Medicare Advantage, and they are dependent on some ways on the crazy way that that system is financed and the risk adjustment games. But in my experience, at least, I mean, I don't know, Don, you and I should probably talk about this. I'd be curious what you think, that having visited some like the IORAs and the Gen Meds and yeah. so forth, again, from a patient perspective, putting aside whether or not these models are taking too much money from CMS or not, but from a patient perspective, it looks great. I wish my elderly parents could have been in one of these. Because what would be different for them? They would get picked up when they needed to go to the doctor. Someone would call them and check in on their meds and check in on how their chronic disease was going. If they needed to get in touch with someone after hours, they could do it. My father, in the last years of his life, living around here in the Washington, D.C. area, was cared for by members, I don't know if I should name systems, of a large system here that claimed to be a system. And, you know, when literally a couple months, a month before he died, actually, and he was feeling poorly, the only answer they had was take him to the ER. And there was no system to really do it. And I, I thought he had a very committed, and my mom has the same one, committed primary care physician, but it looked nothing like what I've seen at one of these advanced systems. We've had Rashika Fernandapool from Iora on this program. And of course, Rashika tells this incredible story of what Iora has been through and the system of care that they've created it around the person, really, and the team around that individual. But now Rashika's organization has been bought by First One Medical and now by Amazon. So now you've got a very different player that's at least pulling the strings on some of these bigger organizations. And, what are your thoughts on what's going on with Well, these? I mean, I think this is sort of the new last chapter of my book is sort of this question of like, can these models survive or will they be consumed by sort of 
the American mercenary capitalist system that United Healthcare, Humana, and Amazon and CVS are all coming in here. Again, from the patient perspective, it looks really good. But at a certain point, will that be undermined? And I think you can look back at the history over the last 50 years and you can keep saying this. And the HMOs have this idea yeah. of coordinating care and having somebody guide someone through the system. And then some people came in and the model was really under my clinical practice for my whole career was in a very well run nonprofit HMO, which was a dream because if your father had been my patient, I would have had a whole team ready to be available to him 24 seven. Now that movement was acquired by financiers, seers and financial interests. And it's a, it is a bit of a horse race here. Noam, you're absolutely amazing. Oh, we hope we don't have to wait for you to finish your book to get you back. I turn on the lights. You or to learn more about what you've been. You exactly turn on the lights to top topics and the other others that you might want to talk about. So I will show my cards and cares and hope that you will come back with us. And we do generally close our interviews with a question, the same question to everybody, which is, where are you on the optimism to pessimism scale? Either for the topic you're focusing on right now, on medical debt, or maybe the future of the American healthcare system. Where are you? If you think we, we're going to continue to head really off the tracks, if I can be too dramatic, or do you see something correcting here? I'm definitely more pessimistic than I was a few years ago. I was very optimistic covering the Affordable Care Act and seeing that pass. It seemed like something really historic had happened. And seeing the impact that expanded coverage has had was really, I think, an inspirational moment as a former political reporter to see our political system do that. But I'm sort of really worried about all of the private equity and the financiers coming in and seeing these models that seemed to be really promising, seeing them sort of fall under the control of big money, I think is worrisome. So now I'm more pessimistic than I was a few years ago, for sure. Well, no, thank you so much. We're, we're looking forward to hearing more from you and learning more from you as we keep going. But thank you for being here. Thanks for being on Turn On The Lights. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Don, we're in uh, Washington, D.C. recording this episode at the moment, and we've had two interviews, and both of our interviewees have described themselves as on the pessimistic end of the spectrum, and I think there's something in that that's quite interesting. I noticed that too. First time we've heard as a summary pessimism. Yeah. I don't know what's going on, but I'll tell you, I think we have no more perceptive journalist studying American healthcare than Noam. No, really. Yeah. He's a very, very smart guy, and he's balanced. Noam does his homework. He yeah. goes into tough topics and doesn't give up until... He's made it clear. I actually hope we have him back very soon and he will say, oh, I'm, I'm optimistic now. I mean, it's the same thing I've been worried about, which is good news, bad news. The good news is there are models. I think he's right for a systems that could, I think, cost less, certainly protect patients better. Or kind provide of provide better care. I mean, there's literally care better for people at different phases of their life. Yeah. And maybe help them not get as sick as they otherwise would. So I see what he says, what he sees in terms of the optimism side. On the other hand, this control of the system by financial interests and money, which I've been thinking and writing about now for really up to a couple of years now, that, that's what he referred to. So I don't know. I think it'd be better if we didn't have such a paralyzed federal but let me ask you another question. I mean, one of the things that you've been writing about a lot, Don, is this idea that MA, which Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Advantage yeah. which is the financial rubric under which some of these better care models are being paid for right now, is in some ways a, a problem. There's a lot of games in the system. There's a lot of challenges around it. Maybe CMS is overpaying for it. But I guess a question for you is, if this model of care is better, right, the IORAs of the world, you know, et cetera, shouldn't we pay for it? 
Yes, but <laughs> the deeper story here is the original idea behind Medicare Advantage was to find orchestrators, conductors, to whom the government would give money to take care of Medicare patients and give it to them in a lump sum. Say, okay, you'll take care of Caramonte for the, you're not Medicare age yet, but for me, say, say defer it for the next year. And here's yeah. a certain amount of money and use it any way you think would help. If getting a taxi yeah. to get the- Buy an air conditioner, you know, send them meals. You know, the, flex- the, the key is flexibility. That's how the good HMOs of the past were doing their work. That's why they were so good. They could afford to invest in teams and right. teamwork and communication systems and outreach. And nowadays they would be able to afford to invest in telemedicine and telehealth. In a fee-for-service chassis, it's very hard to do that. When you're paying for every little widget, you have to figure out the price of the widget and then manage all that billing. It gets pretty complex. Yeah. So the, the idea, the progressive idea back when the predecessor of Medicare Advantage was founded was exactly that. Let's be able to support these truly integrated practices. Unfortunately, the whole system got captivated by money. And even the good guys, the Chen Meds and the Auras, good guys in the sense they're giving special care, I think, began playing a game around get us more money, more money more money. And yeah, I, I don't think the data are equivocal, but it's not that the government is paying a little bit too much to the Medicare Advantage plans. It's paying a ton too much. The estimate I buy is about $600 billion of extra payment over the next eight years. But the principle of this now, the magnitude of the overpayment might be and probably is problematic, but the principle of us investing more in what sounds to me like a better care system is not necessarily Wrong. I mean, it's the concept of a wraparound care navigation, team-based, holistic funding things that will make you healthier, not just paying for diagnostic tests and hospital admissions or ER visits, but the things that will actually make us healthier, food, transportation, better housing, et cetera. That principle is not, it sounds like, isn't a bad one. I think it's uh, a good one. It's uh, a great one, but it's a matter of it's, how it's, we get it's, it right. It's in the structure of it. So two constraints. One is I don't think that can happen in a fee-for-service system. People disagree with me, sure. and I'd love to hear us know what he thinks. And there are countries which still use fee-for-service and do pretty well. But a much more straightforward way to do it is to pay a delivery system of care, yep. a sum of money for the care of a population and yep. they use it the way they want. Yep. And I'd say some of the great care systems in the country do that. The second constraint though has to do with whether there's a middleman. And what we've done with Medicare Advantage is interposed between the government payer, Medicare, yeah. and the deliverer of care, doctors and nurses, insurance companies, yeah. who take a ton of money off the top. They're taking 15 or more percent. And so they're charging us a toll. And the question is, is it worth the toll? And the big debate right now is if you think that private sector insurers have an important and necessary role in channeling that money properly and you paid a fair amount for that, so fine. I would rather see that money go directly to groups of doctors and nurses and medical organizations without that toll of the intermediation yeah, and they're creating the value. Organized. In their original form, forms like IORA, they would have loved to be able to sign contracts directly yeah. with the government saying here, Iora is funding for take care of your yeah. very difficult. We'll problems. do this directly for you on behalf yeah. of your patients. What's happened instead is the financiers have gotten in the middle and Don, they you take know, their pound of flesh. There's another theme here in what we've been exploring. And for perhaps obvious reasons, but I don't, I'm not exactly sure we did this by design. This is the third now episode that we've had on this program 
that relates to this question of medical debt, at least in part in our conversation with them. It feels to me like we ought to be doing something about this. I'm not exactly sure what, but 100 million people, 60 million of them making life choices about what to eat and what to wear and where to live based on whether they face a medical debt burden. That's an insane situation in a wealthy country like ours. And it just feels unconscionable at this point. There has to be something we can do. And frankly, the solutions don't seem that difficult to imagine. You know, Either buy and forgive the debt or lower the deductible to an affordable level that people can actually pay. You'd think so. And the proof of that concept lies in the fact we are alone in this, that there isn't any other developed country that has this problem of medical debt, none. And many outperform us in healthcare. So there's a big screw loose. Whether the solution is simple or not, I guess, depends on where you sit. I think we need to keep exploring that. It's an embarrassment. And as no one pointed out, it's a health problem. I think that's an important connection for our listeners to realize that hurts health. As you inquired, many different channels. And so it can't be good for our country. That study of cancer patients that you mentioned where the cancer outcomes are worse. If you're all other things considered equal and you're facing a debt versus not, the cancer outcome is worse. I mean, that's in terms of fixing it, to to me, the issues in the pronouns, what should we do about it? Well, who's we? You know, if you're a country that has a different structure, there could be a we, you know, a minister of health and a health system that where that's where the buck stops or they're out of office. We have no we right now. There isn't any party, any organization, any individual in the United States that would accept responsibility for solving the problem of medical debt. So there's a structural thing here we're going to have to grapple with. It's a big question. Who is the we or are we the we on some (laughs) level? Well, Don, thank you again. And thanks to Noam for helping us turn on the lights here today. Thanks, Gator. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.